Good evening, Foundation. So let's turn in our Bibles. Let's open up to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. If you're using a digital Bible, look for the New Testament towards the end. If you're looking in a physical Bible, um, it's going to be still towards the end, but uh, it's going to be before Peter, before uh, John, before Revelation. So looking towards Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to be reading through verses 1 through 19. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the men of old gained approval. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he was approved as being righteous, God approving his gifts. And through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up. For prior to being taken up, he was approved as being pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who draws near to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned about things not yet seen in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she regarded him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there were born even of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All these died in faith, without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own, And indeed, if they had been remembering that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they aspire to a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he prepared a city for them. And so by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only son, to whom it was said, in Isaac, your seed shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he also received him back. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you have set before us your word, and we thank you for that privilege. We know that brothers and sisters across the world don't always have the privilege of being able to read your word in their language openly, as a group, comfortably, ready to receive your word in fellowship. Help us, Lord, to be grateful for that and to be receptive to that, Lord. Help us to receive the teaching that is borne out by your word. Let us forget all of our distractions. Let us forget all of our troubles and focus on what you want to teach us from your word. Help us, Lord, to have faith in Jesus Christ, our Messiah. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, I love to read. 
I know that may not be very cool nowadays in the TikTok age where you have to have a six second video. Anything over that is a disaster. But I love to read. I always have loved to read. But unfortunately, because of my schooling and because of my work, I spend a little too much time reading. So at this point, reading outside of school and outside of work feels like more work. So instead, I've started listening to audiobooks. I love audiobooks. I can multitask. I can do chores. I see some applause. I appreciate that. And I listen to fiction. I don't discriminate. I listen to fiction. I listen to nonfiction. I listen to science fiction. I listen to fantasy. I listen to history books. I listen to everything I can get my hands on. I love consuming audiobooks. When I drive, when I'm on the bus, it's the best. But I've noticed If you go to Audible, which is the most popular audiobook site, there are a few books, a certain kind of book that is always on the front page every single time. It's the biography. There are biographies all over the front page of any book site that you go to. And they're filled with stories of people's lives, autobiographies, memoirs, stories from people's lives who have done something significant in life or sometimes not so significant. There are actors and comedians. There are world leaders. There are presidents. There are politicians and military officers. For instance, you can have such a famous person as the first lady. You can actually sit down and listen to the first lady narrate to you her life. Now, this is the first lady from time past, I understand. And I see a lot of glares. I'm not making a political statement, please. Um, you, can, you can listen to the life story of Everyone's favorite royal, Prince Harry. Everyone loves Prince Harry. Why not listen to what he has to say about his difficult upbringing? You can find out about the upbringing of Elon Musk, about a CEO behind multiple tech giants in our space. Over just a few decades, he has raised up multiple tech companies. You can even learn from actors like Matthew McConaughey. Why not? Because if you don't go to UT Austin, you can't learn from him personally, so listen to his audiobook. He actually does teach at UT Austin. I, I, I found that out. And maybe you're more military-minded. Some of, some of the men in here are looking at me because they want something more exciting. Then you can listen to a Navy SEAL narrate how he built up his discipline. You can listen to him talk about what it takes to get through special forces. See, these are the most popular books if you look on the front page right now. These books, these biographies, these life stories, these memoirs, stories of how people lived and what they did in life. They're so popular because we love to learn from the lives of others. So a businessman picks up Elon Musk's biography because he wants to know what makes Elon Musk tick. What causes that drive? What helps give him that vision? Maybe an athlete picks up the book, uh, David Goggins' book because he wants to know, how do I get that discipline? How do I develop that self-reliance that would lead me to the top, to the nationals or even Olympic games? See, we look at life stories in our everyday life because we want to learn from them. We want to learn how to live our lives. Now, we here at Grace Community Church, we call ourselves Christians. We say amen to Paul's statements in Ephesians 2.8 that for by grace you have been saved through faith. We call ourselves believers and we ground our religion in our faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord. But what is faith? What is this thing that we throw around all the time? We, we call it faith. We call it belief. But what is that? And what does it look like in life? Now, if we want to learn about faith, we could go to a variety of different sources. We can actually go to some Christian biographies. We could read about Eric Little, a 1924 Paris Olympian champion. He received a gold medal for track and field. And at the height of his athletic career, he became a missionary to China. And unfortunately... 
but by God's grace and in God's planning, he became a martyr. He died in a Japanese internment camp during World War II. We could read about Jim Elliott, another missionary, this time who was sent to the remote tribes of Ecuador, who was killed by those same tribes in 1956. We can learn about faith from their writings, from their lives, but we can also go to the Bible. I'm sure there are many passages you're thinking of, but we could go to the letter to the Romans. We could go to the letter to the Ephesians. We could go to Hebrews 11, like we just read. We could go to the Gospel of John to learn how to persevere in our faith as believers. But if you go to those places in the Bible and you ask yourself, now where did Paul get his definition of faith? Where did Paul get inspired when he wanted to understand what is faith? You'll find out that Paul read biographies, just like us, except he read them in his Bible. He read them in the books of Genesis, Exodus, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. He read stories about those who came before, those who came in a long line before him in faith. He looked at men and women in faith. The author of Hebrews looked at men and women of faith and saw how they lived their lives out, how they lived a life of faith. Paul even based his entire theology on what it means to have faith on the life of one man in particular. One man for Paul stood out, and that man was Abraham. But why Abraham? I think I'll confess with you, perhaps, that Abraham is not the most exciting character in the Bible. He's no Elijah. He doesn't work miracles. He doesn't walk on water. He doesn't speak in tongues. That's always exciting. He didn't deliver the word of God. He wasn't a prophet. He didn't speak for God. He didn't write any biblical books. There's no book of Abraham. If you find one, you should burn it as immediately. <laughs> Abraham walked around. He lived in a tent. He lived a very normal life in his day and age. The most exciting thing in his life, perhaps, is that he offered up his son as a sacrifice. So who is this man? Who is Abraham, and why is he so important? Why is he the example for Paul when he wants to understand what faith is? And how can we apply Abraham's life to our lives? So tonight we're going to look at the life of Abraham, because it's not just Hebrews 11 that says Abraham is significant. If you go through the New Testament, you will see when everyone wants to talk about faith, they talk about Abraham. Abraham is our model. So turn with me back in your Bible to the very first book, to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. Go towards the end of chapter 11. So Genesis 11, verses, uh, we're going to start in verse 27. Verse 27. Because we need to look back to where the story of Abraham begins. Now Genesis 11, verse 27 reads... Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram. That's an older name for Abraham. Nahor and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. And Haran died in the presence of Terah, his father, in the land of his birth, in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. And Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to go to the land of Canaan. That's our modern-day Israel. That's our modern region of Palestine. And they came as far as Haran and settled there. 
Now, uh, don't get it confused. Haran is a different name from that Haran that was Terah's son. And the days of Terah were 205 years. And Terah died in Haran. Now, that's all we have for our introduction to the story of Abraham. This isn't Elon Musk's biography. This is not telling us where he grew up, what kind of money he came from, who his father was, who his mother was. We don't get that kind of information. We get a very bare bones background to who Abraham is. We get no grand backstory. We get no details. All we know is that Abram is from Ur. His family tried to move to Canaan, but they got stuck in Haran. And one more thing, one very important thing. In verse 30, Sarai, Abram's wife, is barren. She's infertile. She can't have children. Now, maybe we don't feel the impact of that because a lot of us are single in this room because we live in an age where we can boast and say we are child-free. People don't say that they're childless anymore. They say they're child-free because uh, they want to make sure that they don't identify not having a child as something negative. No No matter what your situation is, people want to separate themselves in some portions of our society from the idea that having children is a good thing that having children could be a positive in society. People argue now that having children could even be immoral because this world is so dark, so corrupt. People argue that having children is immoral because it might cause overpopulation. And then sadly, you look at countries that actually limited how many children they could have, and they're having a hard time actually having enough children to fill up their society. Having children in some parts of our society nowadays is actually problematic. But if we want to understand this story, we really need to read it from Abram and Sarai's perspective. We need to understand what this meant for them to be barren. And so for that, we need to go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. We need to go back, and you don't have to turn with me, I'll read it for us. We need to turn back to Genesis 1. Genesis 1, verse 28, after God created Adam and Eve, the first humans, he blessed them with these words. He said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. See, since the beginning, having children has been a part of God's plan for mankind as a whole. Now, I'm not arguing that everyone in here needs to go out and have a baby tomorrow. That is not what's happening. But fundamental to understanding what God is doing in the world is actually filling it with humans. Now, we do have a lot of humans now. I understand we're not as worried about this issue. But you have to understand with the very first family, God told them they need to fill the world. They need to have children. They need to represent God's kingdom on earth. See, man was meant to rule as God's representatives on earth. They were meant to reflect his glory as they ruled over the earth since the beginning. And that necessitated having children to fill this planet. Even after sin corrupts mankind, you might think, okay, well, then we can't have children. We can't have children because they're going to be sinful too. But no, if you look at Genesis 3, turns out that childbearing is still a blessing. Childbearing will be our salvation, God says. Genesis 3.15, we call this the Proto-Evangelion, the very first mention of the gospel in the entire Bible. God curses the serpent and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, that's Eve, and between your seed and her seed. That's the seed of the woman, meaning her descendants. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. See, God promised from the very beginning, when the first sin occurred on earth, he said, The woman will continue to have children, and eventually she will have a son who will defeat the serpent once and for all. The seed of the woman will one day utterly destroy Satan. But this doesn't happen immediately. Every generation, children keep, uh, women keep having children, and we get closer and closer to seeing the seed of the woman. But at the same time, we see that the seed of the woman is under attack. 
We already see that in Genesis 4. Immediately after we hear this promise in Genesis 4, we see Cain, who is the seed of the serpent. He tries to kill the seed of the woman. He kills Abel, his brother. The very first murder in world history is between two brothers. And so we see the stark contrast between those who are serving Satan and those who are serving God. And so we ask the question, will the seed of the woman prevail? Genesis 4.25 tells us it will. Then Adam knew his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him. I'm going to pronounce this actually in English. It works really well. She named him Set. For she said, God has set me another seed in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. And to Set, to him also a son was born. He called his name Enosh. That name means man. Then men began to call upon the name of Yahweh. The line continues because God has established it. And in God's plan, as the godly line continues, there is truly hope through the bearing of children. And this continues onward. In Genesis 5, we see more children are born, more generations are spread throughout the earth. And yet we start to see that mankind is dying off. And so we can't stop having children. We need to have children to find the seed of the woman. And in Genesis 6, we see that mankind has actually been so corrupt that God says every thought of their hearts is only evil continually. He wipes the slate clean, but he preserves one, he preserves one family. And through that family, he repeats the same words in Genesis 9. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So despite sin, despite attacks against God's plan, God says you need to continue filling the earth. You need to have children so we can get to the point where we see the final seed of the woman until we get to Jesus Christ. That brings us back to our story, back to Genesis 11. Back to a couple that cannot have a child. Now, I'm not a betting man, so please don't accuse me of anything. But if I were a betting man and you asked me, now who would you guess in Abram and Sarai's generation, who would you guess God is going to use to spread the godly line, to bring the Messiah to come? Who would you choose? I might give you a bunch of different names. I might find you a rich family. I might find you an educated family. I might find you a very godly family. The last family that you are going to discuss is Abram and Sarai because Sarai is infertile. She can't have a child. There's no option here. This is impossible. Not from the infertile couple, not from the unsuccessful couple, the couple that couldn't even make it to Canaan. See, every couple leading up to Abram and Sarah, they could ask themselves, will our child be the Messiah? Will our child finally bring us rest? That's actually what Noah's parents said. They said, we'll name him Noah, which means rest in Hebrew. We'll name him Noah because he will bring us rest. And to an extent he did, but not ultimately. He didn't give them ultimate rest. Every couple was looking forward to this day. Whenever they had children, they could look forward in hope. They could look forward to salvation from sin and death, but not Abram and Sarai. Abram and Sarai could not look forward to this hope. They weren't your modern power couple. They didn't have status. They didn't have uh, lots of wealth and riches based on this. They had no one they could pass it down to even if they, if they got it. They couldn't even make it out of Mesopotamia, modern day Syria, essentially. But then we look at Genesis chapter 12, verse one. And Yahweh said to Abram, out of nowhere, God speaks. Out of nowhere, God speaks to Abram. Abram, the fatherless. Abram, the childless. Abram, the unimportant. But God speaks to Abraham. He chooses Abram without any reason that we're given here. There's no discussion of Abram is more faithful. Abram is more righteous. There's no discussion of who Abram is, except the fact that he does not have any hope in this life of having children or even getting to Canaan. But Yahweh has a promise for Abram. 
verses 1 through 3 of Genesis 12, go forth from your land and from your kin and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, maybe we've read this before, so it doesn't really hit us as hard as the first time. But you understand that Abram was just promised everything. Abram was promised everything you could ever ask for in the ancient world. God said, I will bless you. No specification, no limitation. He didn't say, I'm going to give you health. I'm going to give you wealth. He said, I will bless you. Everything is included in that blessing, in that general blessing. He said, I will make your name great. That's prestige. That's honor. That's a reputation. That's worldwide renown. He said, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. That's protection. That's blessing in every moment of your life. That's divine guidance. Anyone who's friends with Abram is going to have a good time. Anyone who's the enemy of Abram is going to have a bad time. You can look at Genesis 14 to bear that out. And in fact, he says, Abram will be a blessing for all the families of the earth. Abram will have an impact for all the families of the earth. I think if you're Abram, you say, excellent. I'm going to pack my bags right now. I'm, I'm ready to go. But don't miss the very first promise that we just skipped over. God said, I will make you a great nation. Now I can believe that God will bless me. I think Abraham could say, Abraham could say, I believe that you'll protect me. You're God. I can believe that you'll make me great. But a nation? How can you turn one man into a nation when he can't even have one child? How can this happen? Now, I think that's a good question. I think that's my question. Maybe it's your question when we read this story. But look at the text again. It's not Abram's question. Abram has no questions. Abram goes. God said, go. Abraham goes. Genesis 12, verse 4. So Abram went forth as Yahweh had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now, Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. The man was 75 years old. I'm looking around the room very carefully. I don't want to disrespect any of our elder brothers here. So instead, I'll just let Hebrews speak for me. Back in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 12, it says, he was as good as dead. This is the man that God just promised. You are going to be turned into a nation. Now, okay, maybe if we started off with an 18-year-old, we, we have a long time to build up a, a nice long genealogy. But no, God says, I'm taking a 75-year-old man and I'm promising him with his barren wife that they will turn into a great nation. But what is Abraham's response? Abram responds with faith. We read Hebrews 11 together. Hebrews 11 told us that Abram responded immediately with faith because this is what faith looks like. Faith looks like obedience. Faith looks like trust. Abram has offered the supernatural. He's offered the unbelievable. But Abram believes and Abram obeys. See, it's one thing to say that you believe. I think we can all uh, affirm our assent to doctrines. We can all affirm that we hate sin. We can all affirm that we love the Lord. And yet at the same time, it's another thing to actually follow through on what we believe, on what we say that we believe. We all just sang together. We sang songs filled with true biblical doctrine. It's easy to sing those songs, but is it easy to really act on that belief? Does anyone here remember the election in 2016. I know it was a world away. It was, it was, it was a different time. 
The average gas price in L.A., I looked it up, in 2016 was $2.80. What a world. What has happened? What has happened to this, to this country? No one in 2016 had ever seen a face mask. Unless you went outside the U.S. to an Asian country where it was much more normal. People still thought Twitter was a good place for civil discussion. I'll give you one more. Twitter was still called Twitter in 2016. Now, do you remember in 2016, leading up to the election, it was a very tense time, but do you remember the promises? Do you remember the threats from the elite in our society, from our entertainers, from our thought thinkers in our society, on Twitter, on Facebook? The promises that if a certain candidate was elected, we were all going to move to Canada. Do you remember this? I think you do remember this. I have a quote here from Miley Cyrus. My heart is broken into a hundred... I know, I'm sorry. I I couldn't think of anyone who would better represent our nation than Miley Cyrus. (laughs) My heart is broken into a hundred thousand pieces. This is pre-smoking, so her voice was much clearer. I am moving if Donald Trump is my president. I don't say things I don't mean. She doesn't live in Canada. Snoop Dogg, another world thought leader posted on Instagram with a picture of Vancouver with the, with the caption, my new home. Drake, help me out. I need to find a new place. <laughs> There's a bunch of other less interesting celebrities that I, I don't know who they are, so I'm not going to mention them. But a lot of people did make similar statements, people that maybe are not so famous as well, and most of them did not follow through. They said that they believed that they needed to get out of this country. They needed to go somewhere else. They needed to move. It turns out that moving to another country is pricey. It's difficult. There's cultural differences. In Canada, believe it or not, there can even be language differences. Most of these people are still here. They didn't really believe in what they were saying. We can tell by their actions. Now, maybe some of you here are very bitter conservative Californians. And you've been looking at the promised lands of Texas, of Florida. (laughs) You've been looking somehow at Idaho as the promised land. You've been looking at lower taxes, Your idea of perfect neighbors and that mythical American Christian culture, that perfection that we all search for. And yet you're still here because you love your sunny weather and you love your fresh and authentic food from around the world. You probably don't love the traffic. But the point is that you don't truly believe you're going to move. Maybe you're going to, everyone's going to move and they're going to prove me wrong right after this. But (laughs) the point is that you're still here. It's one thing to say, I, I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to move out of here. I, I'm going to get out of this place. I'm done here. And it's quite another thing to actually go. Abram received a command from God and he immediately went. There was no question of, well, what's the tax rate over there? What are my neighbors going to be like? What are the job opportunities in Canaan? Abram went immediately without questions asked. I think the question for us tonight is, Christian, do you really believe Christian, has God promised you things in scripture that you do not act upon? God tells us through his word that Jesus is the Messiah. The Bible tells us that Jesus did rise from the dead. The Bible tells us that anyone who believes in Jesus shall be saved. The Bible promises that because Jesus was resurrected, one day we will also be resurrected. So we need to ask ourselves right now, do I believe Do I really believe? Do I live in a way that reflects that I truly believe Jesus will return someday? That he will return when we do not expect it? 
Do I really live this life with my body in a way that shows that I know that this life is temporary, that I spend my time in a way that I know that I'm looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth? Abram really believed, and he really went. He went to a land he didn't know, and he went to live in a tent. He went to wait for God's promises of a great nation, of riches, of a family. But the story doesn't end there. If we move on, and I won't read this for us because we'll be here all night, uh, you can look at Genesis 13 through 14. You can see how Abraham is protected. He's blessed by God. So wherever Abraham lives, he is enriched. Wherever he goes, he's protected. He even fights kings as a small tribesman leader. He's able to conquer his surrounding kings in Mesopotamia. In Genesis 15, God reiterates his promise of descendants to Abraham. He says, you'll have as many children as the stars of the sky and innumerable amounts of descendants. And though Abraham was even older in Genesis 15, he still had faith. And so in Genesis 15, verse six, we have this very important passage. It says, then Abraham believed in Yahweh and Yahweh counted it to him as righteousness. See, by faith, Abraham was declared righteous. There's no consideration for what Abraham has done before, what Abraham has done afterwards, but Abraham has faith. Despite all the challenges, Abraham has faith in what God has promised. And God says to him, on that account, on your faith, I declare you righteous. Now, if you wonder where Paul develops the entire arguments for Romans, where Paul develops his entire argument for how justification by faith works, you'll know that Paul goes back to this very verse, Genesis 15, 6. So if there's any verse that you take away from tonight, if there's any verse that you want to have stored in your memory when you're thinking about your faith, you want to remember Genesis 15, 6. Because if you go to Genesis, uh, sorry, Romans chapter 4, Paul is just going to talk about Genesis 15, 6 for an entire chapter. He's going to argue that we know our salvation is based in faith because of how Abraham was declared righteous here through faith and faith alone. But Abraham continues to be faithful in his life. Still in Genesis 15, he has no child. Still in Genesis 16, Sarah has not given birth. And now in Genesis 17, Abraham is promised a son specifically through Sarah. Sarah, who is now older. Sarah, who still has never had a child. And Abraham, again, believes and responds in obedience. He circumcises himself and the males of his household. He essentially puts a sign on his body, the place where he procreates, he cuts off and says, essentially, I trust that God is still going to give me a child. That is the level of dedication that Abraham has. He believes God to even do something as drastic as that, as a sign of what God will do for him and his descendants. He believes he will have descendants. And then Genesis 18 and 19, Abraham continues to live this life of faith. He acts as a mediator for the righteous living in cities of wickedness, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he prays on behalf of anyone there who is still righteous. And finally, in Genesis 21, after 10 chapters of holding out and decades of frustration and disappointment and, and lack of understanding, in Genesis 21, finally, God fulfills the promise of a son through Sarah. Isaac is finally born, not when Abraham is 75, not when Abraham is 80, not when he's 85, not 90. Abraham, scripture tells us, was 100 years old when he finally had his first true firstborn son. 
For decades, for chapters of biblical text, Abraham has believed God. He has waited on God's promise through Sarah. He believed in Genesis 12. He believed in Genesis 13 and 14 and 15. He believed in 17. He believed in 18. We see him believe finally in 21. And only at the age of 100 does he finally see the fulfillment of the promises he's been given. And what is the fulfillment he sees? One promised son, Isaac. He has no land. He has riches. But this is certainly not the makings of a great nation in any of our eyes. Yet Abraham believed. Now, Christian, I ask you, what are you waiting on? How long have you been waiting on God to fulfill his promises? How long have you been struggling And reading Matthew chapter 6, seeing that Jesus promised that God provides for his people and wondering, when will God provide for me? Have you waited five years? Have you waited 10? Have you waited 25? None of you look like you're 100 years old, so I'm going to assume not. The question is, do you believe? When you consider your death in this life, as we start to get older and we consider the fact that we do have an expiration date, what is your response? Because scripture gives us promises and that affects how we think about things. That affects how we live. Paul tells us that if we truly believe we will be resurrected and transformed, yes, we do mourn death. Death is still unnatural in this world. Death is not how God designed the world. And yet we mourn death, not as those without hope. First Thessalonians 4 verse 13, Paul says, we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep. And asleep is just a metaphor for death so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. And after describing how we're resurrected, how we're ripped out of this world to avoid the wrath of God, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 18, therefore comfort one another with these words. Paul is telling us that if you truly believe in what God has promised, you will have peace in this life when you think about death. You will remember that God is going to resurrect us. You will remember that those who are dead now are not dead forever, that those who are dead in Christ will be raised to eternal life. But what about now when you consider your finances? When we see rising inflation, when we see more and more debt at the national scale, when you struggle to make, make ends meet, when you're working with your hands, you're working hard, you're spending money wisely, and still you struggle to put food on the table, what is your response? Have you lost hope? Or do you cling to Jesus' promise in Matthew chapter 6. If you want to turn there, it's Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. Jesus says to us, Matthew 6, 25, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not worth more than they? And who of you by being worried can add a single cubit, that's just a measure of length, to his lifespan? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow, it's thrown into the furnace. Will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith, Jesus says. Do not worry then 
saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For all these things, the Gentiles, that just means people who aren't Jews. Jesus is speaking to Jews. Everyone else who doesn't fear God, they eagerly seek. For your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Now, in Scripture, we find amazing promises to those who serve God. We see amazing promises that Jesus himself has given to his people. The question is, do we have faith? Are we living a life that is not a life of faith, not a life of confidence in what God has promised, but a life of fear, a life of anxiety, a life that shows that we are not trusting in God, a life that prioritizes prioritizes this earthly life and its troubles instead of those things of God's kingdom. Do you have faith in God? Jesus further tells us if we truly believe and we love him truly in John 14, 15, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. See, those who are drawn near to Jesus, those who live with Jesus, those who have faith, they keep Jesus's commandments. So the question is, do we believe? Now we're not asking are you perfect? I'm not asking if you keep every law perfectly, 100%, you've never sinned in your life. I don't believe that you haven't because perfection will only be found after the resurrection. Because if we go back and we reread Genesis 12 through 25, we'll find that Abraham wasn't perfect. Abraham, our model of faith, wasn't perfect. So we've seen how Abraham was the faithful. Now we're looking at how Abraham was the sinner. Abraham the sinner. See, we we read together Genesis 12. We looked at the first few verses of Genesis 12. And very often, I think when we want to think about what's going on in Abraham's life, we stop at verse nine. We say, yes, Genesis, uh, Abraham was faithful. He went to the land. He obeyed God. He lived there. He dwelt there. He camped around in Israel. And maybe we skip the next part. We skip the rest of Genesis chapter 12. Maybe we don't even remember right now what's in the rest of Genesis chapter 12. Because it doesn't really fit our conception of how the story should go. Because in the next story, Abraham isn't Abraham the faithful. He's Abraham the liar. He's Abraham the deceitful. That's right, the father of our faith. The father of Israel. The one we need to learn from. I'm arguing today, and Paul writes in scripture, we need to learn from this man. He, in Genesis chapter 12, is a liar. Abraham is a coward. Abraham is a fool. It doesn't look good. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 12, verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it happened as he drew near to entering Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, now behold, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And it will be when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife and they will kill me, but they will let you live. What a compliment. Men, please do not try this. It it probably will not go well. You are so beautiful that people will kill me if I'm seen around you. (laughs) He says to his wife, please say in verse 13 that you are my sister so that it may go well with me because of you and that I may live on account of you. Now we'll learn in Genesis chapter 20 that they are related in a sense, but he's clearly trying to hide something. He's hiding that she is his wife. That's the whole point of his discussion here. Verse 14, now it happened when Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And Pharaoh's officials saw her. They praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore, 
he treated Abram well because of her, because he thought he was just her brother. And sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels came into his possession. So Sarah is now, Abram's wife is now stuck in the household of another person, another man. She's in the house of a foreign king. This is disaster. This is the end. God said, I'm going to make you a great nation. Now your wife is stolen. How is God going to make you a great nation? So God has to step in in verse 17. But Yahweh struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for myself as a wife. So now here is your wife, take her and go. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning Abraham and they sent him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. See, Abraham does not look good in this, in this story. Abraham was a coward. He feared more for his life than any concern for his wife's purity, for his wife's safety. He was a liar. He intentionally deceived his host by saying that this was just his sister. And in the end, notice this, a foreigner, someone not called by God, Pharaoh, the ancestor probably of people who will later enslave the Israelites. Pharaoh himself looks more honest. He looks more upright. He looks more righteous than Abram, our hero in Genesis chapter 12. It's an embarrassing story. It's the kind you would never brag about if Abraham were your ancestor. You would never want to talk about this. So why does Moses tell this story? Remember, Moses isn't giving us Abraham's diary. He's not giving us just word for word every single thing that happened in Abraham's life. We have a lot of years that we've skipped over in Abraham's life. Moses is giving us specific stories, which means that every story we get, we have to figure out what is Moses doing with this story? Why is he telling this to us? He doesn't have to. I think Moses is telling us this part of the story, this part of Abraham's life, because Abraham was a real person. Abraham was a real person who followed God. Abraham was a sinner. Abraham's faith wasn't perfect. He was a man of faith, but he wasn't a perfect man. Even Abraham, the father of our faith, the one we look up to, the one we look to to learn how to have faith in this life, he himself was a sinner. He struggled and even failed at times in his life. And Moses tells us this story immediately after showing Abraham's obedience to follow God into the promised land. By all means, Moses could have given us more stories in between. He could have told us nice dates that Abraham and Sarai had. He could have developed that relationship. He could have told us they had a really good, strong, trusting relationship. They never would have betrayed each other. They they had um, sort of a contract with each other. They knew what to do in times of danger. No, he doesn't give us anything like that. Maybe it happened. Maybe it didn't. We don't know. He just moves immediately to Abraham's failure. He moves immediately from promise and obedience to sin. Because both are true. Because Abraham is a faithful believer. But Abraham is also a sinner. See, if you read Abraham's story from start to finish, from Genesis 11 on through Genesis 25, you'll see that this is the tension of Abraham's story. This is the tension of Abraham's life. He is both sinner and saint. He is both obedient and disobedient. I can prove this by looking at Genesis 16. In Genesis 16, Abraham sins again. We told you before, Genesis 12, he has faith. Genesis 13, 14, 15, he has faith. Genesis 16 already, we're going to see another example of heinous sin on Abraham's part. This time, he and his wife, again together, commit a sin together 
trying to fulfill God's promises, but this time in their own way. God said, I will make you a great nation. I will give you descendants. Your descendants will own this land. Abraham and Sarai say, we don't see that happening. Let's find another way. Let's fulfill God's promises on our own. Let's build Christ's kingdom now. Let's figure out a way to take over this world on our own. He and Sarah assume that they can simply have a baby with another woman and God will bless that and say, yes, even though this is adultery, now you have a baby. I will make you a great nation out of this one baby. They think they can help God out with his work, with his promise, with what he has promised to them. They think having a baby is all that matters, but that's not what God had in mind. Of course, Abraham could have a baby. Of course, God could bless him in that way. God could give him health, even until he's 100 years old. But that by itself is not the most miraculous part of Abraham's story. That by itself doesn't take faith. Abraham commits adultery, and he fathers a different son, a son that God did not designate for his godly line. He fathers Ishmael, a boy who, in our story, would later mock Isaac, a boy who would mock the actual son of promise, the boy who would be the father of the godly line. See, the tension in this family now becomes so dangerous. There are consequences to Abraham's sin. The tension in this family becomes so dangerous, becomes so heated. There are problems between mother to mother and son to son that Abraham actually, in Genesis 21, has to send Hagar, Ishmael's mother, and Ishmael away. He has to abandon them. He has to get rid of them because they're causing problems in the family. Abraham's sin has real consequences. Much like our sin today, whether we are a believer or not, it has consequences. Sin always has consequences. And we would wish that that's the last time we would see Abraham sin, but we have to see once more in Genesis 20. Genesis 20, perhaps most amazingly of all, Abraham sins once again in Genesis 20, but this time it's a repeat of the exact same sin of Genesis 12. Remember in Genesis 12, he fooled a foreign king. He fooled his host. He was dishonorable. He passed off his wife as just his sister, as just a distant relative in a sense, just someone who's who's not quite related to him. You don't need to worry about me. You don't need to kill me because this is just my sister. Once again, he lies to a foreign king. Once again, he pretends that Sarah is not his wife. And once again in Genesis 20, the king finds out because God stops Abraham and Sarah from destroying his promise. He stops Sarah from having a baby with anyone else. He stops them from destroying the promise that he had, that it would be Abraham and Sarah and Isaac as their descendants. And once again, at the end of Genesis 20, the king comes out and he scolds Abraham. We don't see Abraham teaching the world how to be righteous. We don't see Abraham blessing all the families of the earth. We see Abraham being scolded by all the families of the earth. We see Abraham doing the opposite of his mission. So we ask ourselves, has Abraham learned nothing? It's the same sin. It's the exact same sin. So I think Moses wants us to ask at this point in Genesis 20, we've seen a life that has faith in it. We've seen a life that also has sin in it. And Moses wants us to ask the question, who is this Abraham? What does it look like to live a life of faith? Is Abraham truly a man of faith? Or is he just a sinner? Is Abraham just a sinner? But that leads us directly into Genesis chapter 21 and Genesis chapter 22. Here we will see Abraham the vindicated. Abraham the vindicated. Because at Genesis 21 and Genesis 22, we see these two axes of Abraham's life intersect. We see Abraham as a sinner. We see Abraham faithful who believes God. And these two points 
finally meet in Abraham's life. We've seen Abraham's faith time and time again. We've also seen Abraham's failures back and forth. And only after we get this very complex picture, this complicated story of Abraham's life, only now does God's promise come to pass. Does God push forward the story in Abraham's life? Only now in Genesis 21 do we get the birth of Isaac when Abraham is 100 years old. Now, Abraham has two sons. He has Ishmael. He has Isaac. From the worldly perspective, this is great. More sons is better. This is insurance. This is, to borrow Prince Harry's words, you have a spare. But in God's mind, this is not a, ben- this is not a positive. This is not a benefit. Now, because Ishmael is Abraham's son, and because Abraham is blessed by God and his descendants are blessed, God says, for your sake, I will bless Ishmael. He will be generous to Ishmael. Even though he's not the son of the promise, he will still bless him. He will still be the father of his own nations. But God declares in Genesis chapter 21, verse 12, he says, do not be distressed because of the boy, that's Ishmael, and your maidservant, that's Hagar, his mother. Whatever Sarah tells you, that's to get rid of them. Listen to her voice. For through Isaac, your seed shall be named. God makes it very clear. You've tried everything you could. You've done everything you could to make these promises come to pass in your way, in your timing, in your wisdom. But God says, no, only in my plan, only by my promises. He says, not through Ishmael. He says, not through any other sons that Abraham might ever have. If you look to Genesis chapter 25, you see Abraham has more sons. But there are no other options in God's plan. It's Isaac or nothing. Isaac or all the promises will fail. And only then, after God has narrowed down all chances of success for himself, after God has narrowed down the promises to only be fulfilled in one boy, we have Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. Look at verse one. Following on immediately from this context, God says, or Moses writes, now it happened after these things that God tested Abraham And said to him, Abraham. And Abraham said, here I am. Then God said, take now your son, your only one, whom you love, Isaac. And go forth to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. In Genesis chapter 12, Abraham didn't know where he was going. God said, go to the place I will tell you, and I will make you a great nation. In Genesis chapter 22, God is saying, go to the place where I will tell you and offer up your son as a sacrifice. The son of promise, the only son through whom I will ever fulfill my promises to you. The only son that in God's timing, in God's plan matters. According to God's promises, only through Isaac will all of these promises come to pass. Now, when we read this story, we have so many questions. I have so many questions. If you don't have any questions, I don't know what you're doing when you're reading this passage. We ask, why? Why this? I've never seen child sacrifice condoned in the Bible. What is going on? We ask, when? When is this supposed to happen? Uh, Next year, after Isaac has had babies? After I have grandchildren? We ask, are you sure? Do you remember one chapter ago? It's only through Isaac that these promises will come to pass? We ask, How? 
Am I supposed to do this? Do I knock him out? Do I drug him? Do I drag him there? What is the plan here? Didn't you just say it was through Isaac that my descendants will be named? Don't we need Isaac? Isn't Isaac everything? Starting in Genesis 12, isn't Isaac everything? But look back at what it says in verse 1. Scripture says that God tested Abraham. Genesis 11 through 25, we've seen Abraham at his best. We've seen Abraham at his worst. We've seen faith. We've seen sin in the same man, in the same life. The question now that God is posing for him and for us, as it's written in scripture, is what will Abraham do now? We've seen failure. We've seen obedience. What is going to happen now? What does that faith that God declared righteous in Genesis 15, 6 really look like when Abraham is pushed to the limit, when Abraham is put to his final and most important test? What does that faith of Genesis 15, 6 really look like? Now, I have questions when I see what God said. Maybe you have questions. But notice who doesn't have questions. Abraham has no questions. Abraham got up early in the morning. Abraham does have faith. He has obedient faith. Look at verses 3 through 5 of Genesis 22. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Abraham in Genesis 22 is a rich man. He has servants. Go back and read Genesis 14. You'll see that he even has trained military retainers. He has armed guards. He has servants who can help him with cooking, with manual labor. He is now blessed. He has health and wealth. He has prosperity. He has everything he needs in life. But Abraham personally begins the preparations himself. He wakes up early, an old man. He begins chopping wood. He saddles his donkey. He prepares everything he needs. And only then does he bring the young man. Only then does he bring Isaac. And in verse four, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from a distance. From afar, Abraham sees the very mountain on which he is going to kill now his only son, the son of promise. We want a verse 4.5. We want a verse in between to say, now Abraham struggled. He, he doubted God and he turned around and he said, I can't do this. No, verse five. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy, that's Isaac, go over there and we will worship and we will return to you. Abraham immediately obeys in faith. Abraham takes his only son. In faith, he personally prepares for the journey. And in faith, he sees the place from a distance and he continues. In faith, he will do exactly as the Lord asks. How is this all in faith, you ask? It doesn't say in there that he has faith. Why am I saying that all this is invested with faith? Because Abraham believes no matter what happens, even if he murders Isaac right now, he believes God never lies. God always fulfills his promises. God will fulfill his promise no matter what happens next. Because the impossible is no obstacle for Yahweh. God has seen an elderly couple give birth to a son 
when, as Hebrews says, they were nearly as good as dead. Abraham knows who God is. And so he responds with faith. Abraham knows that God is faithful. And so Abraham, in response, must be faithful. Notice back in verse 5, it says, <coughs> there's that cough. It says in verse 5, Abraham speaking to these young men, he says, we will worship. And then don't miss this. This is in the original. This is, this is not just the English translation. It says, and we will return to you. Abraham has every intention to go kill his son. And yet, no matter what, he says, we're coming back. I'm going to go kill Isaac. And then Isaac and I are going to walk down and we're going to come back home. That's what Abraham just said to his servants. He has no doubt in his mind that his seed will be named after Isaac. That's what he was promised in Genesis 21. And so Abraham puts two and two together. He doesn't have the Bible. He doesn't have all the doctrine that we have. He doesn't have Pastor John MacArthur giving him a sermon every Sunday. But he knows, based on what God has said and based on who God is, he knows that God will somehow fulfill his promise through Isaac. Isaac may be killed, Abraham is thinking, but God will resurrect him. He has faith that God is faithful. This is what we see in Hebrews eleven nineteen. It says, he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he also received him back. In a sense, he did receive him back from the dead because he expected him to die any moment. But if we read on in Genesis 22, Abraham does get to that moment. He does raise the knife. He does prepare to murder his son because he has true faith and he will follow through. But blessedly, in Genesis verse 22, verse 12, God says, do not stretch out your hand against the boy and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God. Since you have not withheld your son, your only one from me. Now, God is, of course, omniscient. He knows everything. That's not what's going on in this passage. I can prove that to you from Psalm 139, verse 4. It reads, and this is among uh, countless passages, it reads, even before there's a word on my tongue, the psalmist says, behold, O Yahweh, you know it all. Before the psalmist speaks, God knows what's on his mind. So God doesn't need to wait for Abraham to raise a knife. He knows his mind the entire time. He knows ahead of time what Abraham's going to do because God is sovereign over all things. He plans all things. He knows what's going on. But God says, now I know that you fear God. The issue is not whether God is learning something. The issue is that God, in front of Abraham himself, in front of Isaac himself, and now in scripture, in front of us, God himself is vindicating Abraham. He is proving himself. He is saying officially, formally, that Abraham's faith is genuine. Abraham's faith is proven for all to see. God credited to Abraham righteousness in Genesis 15, 6. God saw something that no one else can see. I can't see whether you have true faith. No one here, your pastor cannot see whether you have true faith. God can see whether you have true faith. And based on that true faith, God will count it as righteousness. If you truly have faith in Jesus Christ as your Messiah, as your Savior, as your offering for sin, as the one who was resurrected from the dead, God will offer you that righteousness. But we can't see that. God can. But you know what we can all see is Abraham's obedience in Genesis 22. We can all see this moment in, in Abraham's life. We can all see that his faith is proven and God himself is going to establish that this 
is what faith looks like. True obedience, trusting that even if you're doing the craziest thing you can imagine on behalf of God, if God has promised something, he will not go back on his promises. Friends, if you've ever wondered what James is talking about when he says faith without works is dead, this is what he's talking about. People read James and they get confused. They say, I don't know why James focuses so much on works when he's talking about faith. He says in James 2 verse 17, even so faith, if it has no works, is dead by itself. Remember that James is writing about testing and trials and perseverance. And he says, in all that testing, you must have faith that lives, faith that is alive, faith that shows itself in works. And so he says, look back at Genesis 22. What is Genesis 22 about? It's about the testing of a man's faith. So James points back, not to Genesis 15 initially, he points back to Genesis 22 because he says, this is what I'm talking about. I'm talking about someone who was declared righteous. He says, what does that look like? James says, what does that look like? It looks like Abraham offering up his son, trusting that no matter what, God will follow through. James says, if you truly say you have faith, you need to look like Abraham. James says, you will only be vindicated if you live out faith that looks like Abraham's faith. See, we've seen all through Abraham's life, we've seen that Abraham was imperfect. We've seen that he was a sinner. We've seen that at times he failed. But Abraham, despite his sin, despite his corrupted flesh, despite the fact that he is a human just like the rest of us, he had a living faith. He had a real faith. Abraham's faith was not dead. He was proven that he had real faith through this act of obedience. And because of Abraham's perseverance and his obedience and faith, despite his imperfections, despite his sin, despite his failings, Paul looks at Abraham's life and you know what he highlights? He doesn't highlight all the problems in Abraham's life. Moses has done that for us. But when Paul looks back at Abraham, what he sees and what he focuses on and what he says we need to look at is Abraham's life of faith. You can turn with me to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, I'll read for us verses 19 through 25, where we get this explicitly from Paul. Paul says, describing Abraham, and without becoming weak in faith, Abraham contemplated his own body. Abraham was not blind to the situation. Abraham didn't fail to realize he's 100 years old, but he looked at his body. Now as good as dead, Paul's, Paul's a little rough with old people as well, since he was about 100 years old. And the deadness of Sarah's womb he, womb, he looks at both of them. He says, this is impossible. Verse 20, yet with respect to the promise of God, Abraham did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to do. Therefore, Genesis 15, 6, Paul quotes, it was also counted to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was counted to him. Brothers and sisters, Abraham did not have the book of Genesis. He didn't get to read this later and say, oh, cool. Now I can see that, yes, God counted that to me as righteous. Abraham died long before Moses wrote these stories down for us. It wasn't really written for him. Verse 24, but for our sake also. In other words, Paul's saying we are supposed to learn from this. We're supposed to base our theology, our lives on this story. But for our sake also to whom it will be counted, as those who believe upon him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over on account of our transgressions and was raised on account of our justification. Brothers and sisters, we call ourselves believers. 
But we know we still struggle in obedience, in obedience and faith. But God has given us the example of Abraham. For our sake, this was written down. It was written for our benefit so that we would learn from him what a life of faith looks like. Because that's what our life looks like. Make no mistake, Abraham is our example because we are just like Abraham. We look at Genesis chapter 12. We look at Genesis chapter 16. We look at Genesis 20 and we say, how could Abraham do all these things? Didn't Abraham learn the first time? How many of us could honestly say to ourselves, there's nothing I need to learn from in my life. There's no sin that I need to root out. I have been perfected in my faith. First John says, anyone who says he is without sin is a liar. First John 3, 9, everyone who has been born of God does not go on sinning because his seed abides in him. And he cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. At the same time, John says in 1 John 1, 8 through 10, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful, that's Jesus, and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say, verse 10, that we have not sinned, we make Jesus a liar and his word is not in us. See, John tells us that a believer does not go on sinning. That's not what a believer's life looks like. Genesis 22 had to happen. We had to see for this last big story in Abraham's life. This is essentially the last major story in Abraham's life. We had to see who is Abraham really? What characterizes his life? Does he end his life in failure? No, we saw he ends his life showing that he truly has faith. Abraham lived a longer life. Abraham did other things. Moses could have written all those things down, but he wanted to highlight for us to see what characterizes Abraham's life. It's a life of faith. Still a believer struggles. A believer is not perfect. A true believer still sins. And so we see Paul's going to speak more in Romans chapter 7. Verse 15, he says, describing what it's like for a believer to struggle with sin. He says, for what I am working out, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. The believer hates his sin, but the believer is still in a corrupt body. He is still influenced by the lusts of the flesh. He is still influenced by his own sinful heart. He still lives an imperfect life, but he wages a war against sin. Romans 7, verses 22 through 24, Paul says, For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in my members, that's my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a captive to the law of sin, which is in my body. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of this death? Paul recognized that it's, it's not easy. It's not simple. It's still a battle. The believer is still trapped in this present life, still waiting for the end, still waiting for that resurrection. Moses wants us to see that Abraham, the patriarch of faith, is just like us. If we truly have the faith of Abraham, if we truly have saving faith, we will fight sin. We will not have a dead faith that stays in sin, that's stuck in sin, that's characterized by sin, but we will have a faith that works itself out, that shows itself like those saints of Hebrews 11, that shows itself like in the life of Abraham, to where at the end, you can look at Abraham's life and say, this is a man who did not waver in his faith. So when you struggle, when you have doubt, when you don't understand how this world works, you need to look to God's promises and be encouraged by the life of Abraham. 
Like Abraham, we do not yet see the promises fulfilled. The world is still corrupt. Sin is everywhere. Even our bodies are still corrupted by sin. We are tempted by our own evil desires. We are tempted to abandon the faith in the resurrected Messiah. It's too supernatural. It's too unreal for us. We're tempted to love the world. We're tempted to seek the the world's approval. But remember Abraham, a man who had faith in a foreign land. Remember our faith in Christ, our Savior, the faithful one. Remember his promises to return for his people, to take us with him in 1 Thessalonians 4, to transform us in 1 Corinthians 15, to rule this earth in Revelation 20, to right all wrongs still in Revelation 20, to heal all sicknesses in Revelation 20, to resurrect all the dead still we are in the end of Revelation, to wipe away every tear and to reign in his perfect glory. I don't know what that will look like in your life. I don't know what you're struggling with. I don't know what is hard for you in life, whether it's finances, whether it's that you're being pressured to commit fraud at work, whether you're being pressured that maybe if I just cheat on my taxes, I'll use this extra money. I'll give it to the church. I'll be able to survive with this. Maybe it looks like taking an extra work shift on a Saturday so that you can go to church on Sunday. I don't know what that looks like in your life, but God calls us to live a life of faith, a life that looks like Abraham's life, a life of obedience that in the end, you can look at it and say, I trust in my Redeemer. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we live in a fallen world. We see sin around us. We see horrendous crimes committed against people made in your image across the world, people murdered in their houses. We see poverty in this world. We see homelessness on our streets. We struggle ourselves with anxiety. We struggle with stress as we work jobs, as we study, as we deal with family tensions, as we try to preach the gospel. But Lord, we know that we have examples of those who came before us. Men and women who lived in a world just like ours, a world no less sinful than ours, a world with the very same struggles, the very same temptations. And so, Lord, we pray that you would encourage us by looking at these lives of faith, that we would look at the life of Abraham and see what true faith looks like, faith that truly lives in obedience and submission to our God. Help us, Lord, to be pushed, to be strengthened in our faith and to follow you. For the sake of the glory of our Messiah, Jesus Christ, amen.